Hello, I'm Paige, and this is the Euro Intelligence Podcast covering current affairs in the EU and Eurozone. I'm joined by Wolfgang and Susanna, directors of Euro Intelligence in Oxford. Guys, bit of a slow news week this week, isn't it? All the noise surrounding lockdown has been drowned out by Joe Biden and Donald Trump's battle over the presidency. Many observers anticipated conflict and legal challenges, but the polls were off again. A blue wave failed to materialize and there was no Biden landslide. Now the whole thing is a big mess. Wolfgang, what do the US elections mean for Europe? The Europeans were completely uh, caught off guard by this. They had only prepared for one scenario, which was that of a Biden landslide and of the Democrats taking the Senate in particular. That didn't happen. Uh, both didn't happen. The Germans weren't particularly very upset about this vote. They had not only hoped for Biden as president, which, you know, they might still get that, that might still happen, but they they wanted or they were hoping for a complete repudiation of Trump, and that didn't happen. It's It's very clear that Trumpism, or whatever you want to call it, is a leading force in American politics right now. It might return in the in the twenty twenty four election. The Republicans will, uh, you know, it will. The Republicans will not easily get rid of it. Uh, who knows? Trump himself might return in twenty twenty four. One of his, uh, you know, acolytes, children, or whoever. Uh, so Trumpism is very much there to stay, and the Germans will have to start doing something that they had tried to avoid doing, which is to consider the notion of European strategic autonomy is something the Germans, is an issue they didn't want to get into. There was a comment by the German defense minister, Anna Great Kramp-Karrenbauer, on uh, earlier this week in, a, in, an, in an article. And she, she basically said all this stuff about European strategic autonomy is, is all very naive. And, you know, NATO is the only game in town. And, uh, you know, we have to return to the good old transatlantic relationship. And that's that's very naive. It's very comforting for the Germans because it, it lets them off the hook in so many issues. The transatlantic relationship, especially with a with you know with a forbearing American president who doesn't really look that hard on German defense spending, is uh, is, a, is an arrangement in which Germany has the maximum level of protection without having to make the contribution. Germany is the, the ultimate free rider in the in the NATO defense system. Um, so this this means that Germany and the other European countries will have to, you know, continue the process that they very slowly started, which is to build up a foreign and security policy step by step. This isn't going to be this isn't going to be fast, but they will have to continue uh, on this process. Something Germany finds very uncomfortable. It's going to be very difficult to do in the next for the for the next government if it's a CDU Green government. The Greens do not. Uh, you know, are not in favor of higher defense spending, nor is the SPD, nor is any of the parties of the left. The Greens might be open to it if it was a European project, um, but the CDU doesn't isn't open for European defense just yet. There are some in the party that might consider it, but it's still a transatlantic party. Or it's a party of transatlanticists in defense areas. They 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 were always Euroskeptics when it came to defense. So this is a this is a new new environment, and they they now have to do what we've been telling them for a long time. Basically, the Cold War uh, infrastructure is over now, and and uh, Obama gave the Germans the illusion that there was a special relationship, like there were the British always had this illusion of a special relationship under previous presidents. And and the reality is that this is no longer so. The U.S. is becoming more transpacific than transatlantic. It's becoming more inward oriented. The U.S. society has so many problems that it, it that require focus. By whoever becomes president will require will need to focus on domestic issues much more 
and that's a world which requires a rethink in in Europe, and that rethink hasn't even begun. Uh, and and it's something that you know that is very discomforting for them. Yeah, and I can see this issue becoming much more important in the future, particularly given spending cuts to EU level defense initiatives in the most recent budget. Uh, Suzanne, I'm really interested to know from the French perspective, what is the significance of American elections? What would a Biden victory mean for the current French government? And and God, what would it mean if he didn't win? (laughs) Well, uh, as we all know, um, or remember well in 2017, when Macron came to power, there was this body relationship with Donald Trump, uh, the famous handshakes and who holds the hands longer. That, of course, was uh, a short diplomacy that ended very quickly. And uh, in the last couple of years, uh, Macron had more uh, reason to clash with um, Donald Trump than before. So, I mean, the hope was certainly uh, that Joe Biden wins with a landslide and helps him backing up uh, his uh, engagements. Also, the, the relationship with Iran was one of the hopes uh, where France has a very strong um, a strong view on or its operations in Sahel. There was a hope that um, Biden could actually back it up in terms of counter-terrorist operations. There is also the question now that France is in the middle of this campaign and facing an ugly campaign uh, from Qatar and Turkey uh, against its goods and against the values of the Republic. Uh, It needs all allies it can find. And uh, Europe being Europe, um, taking its time on siding with uh, Macron, these issues and really condemning the Islamist attacks uh, that they're facing and also the assault via social media. A strong US president backing Macron would be more than welcome. Yeah, I mean, I hadn't even thought of that actually, but the US has been kind of silent about all the terror attacks that are happening in Europe right now. Why do you think that is? Maybe it's a, it's what uh, links to what Wolfgang says. It's just there's more in what looking the elections was going on. And they didn't want to meddle or didn't want to bring in anything that is international or that screws up their agenda and shows that there's a transatlantic bridge and there's any influence on of European issues uh, that could impede on the election campaign. If Biden becomes president, he will have a Republican Senate. That's very clear now. And uh, he will have a Democratic House. So they will, they will be able to pass budgets. Um, they, because it's only the House that that is responsible for for the budget. So th- that part of the Biden agenda might get through. There might be another stimulus, but the in in many areas the Republicans will 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 block Biden. For example, any appointments. There may be appointments that will be blocked by the by the Senate. Laws, uh, in particular, changes in trade and sanctions policies will be very hard to do. Uh, and, and all and many areas of international multilateral en- engagement will be very hard to do uh, without the support of the Senate. So, th- so I suspect this the Biden agenda, foreign policy agenda, will be very hamstrung um, because if there is an, a Republican Senate uh, that is not playing along, and and while I do not expect the Senate to be completely obstructive, it never it never is the case. It can be sufficiently obstructive, especially in the in the current situation of a very very split electorate. Um, and this is essentially, you know, as people in the UK here pointed out, this is like the fifty two forty eight split. 
and uh, that's exactly the, the the split in the popular vote. And uh, the forty eight percent do not go, you know, silently into the night. They basically uh, mm. they basically want to uh, reassert their position. The only in two institutions which are firmly in rep- Republican hands now are the Senate and the court, the Supreme Court. And these institutions will influence, uh, will, will will cast their influence. Uh, I have no doubt about this. So the Biden agenda will be will be weakened. The landslide of Biden would have had a landslide would have had two effects. It would have it would have brought unity to the Congress. So Biden would have been able to push through at least you know his some of his agenda through, which he won't be able to do now. And uh, you know having a unified Congress and and White House would limit the powers of the court. Uh, especially since since the Congress can change laws, uh, so so the court the court's influence on the agenda would have been would have been less. So my expectation is that what Europe had hoped Biden to achieve, that that won't happen, and that is independent of whether he becomes president or not. Let's play worst case scenario for a second. What happens if Trump manages to win the election, one way or another, hook or by crook? What does that mean for Europe? Well, Trump wins for Europe, then a lot of what we just said becomes just, just so much clearer. It, it just mm-hmm. basically means that the transatlantic relationship is an illusion. The idea that America returns to the Paris Climate Accord, not going to happen. The WTO appeals panel will remain blocked. And that basically means that the whole trade infrastructure is going to be blocked for a very, very long time. So I would assume that the European, the the agenda of any form of European strategic uh, autonomy, foreign policy uh, arrangements we make ourselves will become serious. We will have to protect ourselves against US secondary sanctions. Uh, We haven't done that yet. We will have to use European capital. We have to do exactly what they do. Use the European capital markets. If if US government imposes sanctions on us, then we have to retaliate against US companies. And the obvious candidates would be the big four high-tech companies. We restrict their market access. We restrict the market access of the banks that do business with them. We do exactly what they do. We have the capacity it might not be that easy because they have a monopoly in their respective fields. But the ability to use the access of the capital market to use the currency is a potentially very strong policy tool that the EU can employ almost as well as the Americans could. Hopefully it doesn't come to that. I mean, I've just been thinking about this because as we record this right now, there are a lot of disputes going on over Nevada, um, Arizona, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. So we really... Still don't know what exactly is going to happen. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think we should treat, you know, it's very likely given the counts that Biden, you know, will at, at one point be declared the winner, uh, maybe even by the time we, we go, you know, this this podcast is published. But we should not presume that this is the prevailing situation. I keep a completely open scenario. Hmm? It might be challenged anyway. So it might be challenged, and we don't know yet what the, how the electoral college will vote. And uh, this is still until December. We have, yes. uh, and of course, if it's a challenged in any cause, this will drag on for quite some time. It could, yes. Uh, speaking further to European unity, we have also been looking more at the EU budget and recovery fund, as well as the viability of EU fiscal discipline rules. Wolfgang and Susanna, what? should policymakers be worried about right now? The biggest concern for the recovery fund um, is at the moment the ratification procedure. Uh, We have a number of 
issues are interlinked. The engagement, the actual rules of engagement of the fund itself. Uh, the European Parliament wants to loosen various parameters, especially you know fiscal deficit rules going forward, conditionality. That's going to be a big sticking point because several member states they do eventually want to return to the fiscal rules. Another issue that's indirectly linked to it is the rule of law debate because this whole budget thing has to be passed as a single package and the um, the parliament and the council have agreed now a compromise on the rule of law um, language that is a significant hardening of what the German presidency had proposed. You might remember that when the German presidency came up with this proposal, we said it was very weak, it was very friendly towards Hungary. It would ensure that this would never be triggered. Now that the compromise that they achieved now is one which uh, where it is not clear. It might well, you know, it's, it's certainly a hardening in the language. It would uh, empower the European Commission to act even on suspected uh, violations of the law uh, and withhold funds. And Hungary would have to organize a, a minority of countries that would block that ruling. Um, and the only thing that was actually overturned in the council proposal was the, the, the proposed switch of the uh, qualified majority vote. So a qualified majority would now be needed to impose uh, the restriction, but that is not actually a very, very big, big hurdle because such a qualified majority would, in the case of Hungary, exist. Uh, so Hungary would lose its ability to simply veto this uh, or block this, find a way to block this. And therefore, this is not going to be acceptable to the Hungarians. So I cannot see how Hungary will accept that unless Hungary gets assurances that this thing will never be triggered. Do you think that's likely to happen? I think there have there will have to be further compromises, further talks. This will go forwards and backwards, and then we're coming back to the to your first question: Where does this leave the recovery fund? And the answer is with a severe delay. That's basically the the cost, the price we pay by folding this this fiscal thing into the EU budget. And in the meantime, of course, the European countries will all have to decide how much they want to put into all into their economies and preventing them from tanking. Uh, and uh, I mean, the approach from Emmanuel Macron to say, whatever it takes, it will cost. We will do whatever it takes for preventing and helping the shopkeepers to survive the second lockdown is something that is endorsed by um, the IMF, for example. Uh, but at the moment, we are looking at a deficit that is already at 11.4% in latest predictions. Uh, that might actually be too optimistic, depending on how long this next lockdown is. And if you project into the future and saying, okay, this second lockdown has not been actually in the forecast, maybe we have faced another one or two uh, lockdowns further down the line, then we are looking at very uncertain terms, fiscal terms for each of the EU governments um, that has not been in the cards yet. And uh, from that, coming back to sustainable financing and, uh, and asking questions that actually haven't been asked at the moment because we have low interest rates and financing seems to be easier or at least abundant, abundantly available. So the question they have to ask themselves, what is the, the changeover point? At what point does the government decide to pull the plug on the follow-along schemes or any other support schemes? Because that's the crucial point at which we will see more bankruptcies to happen and more people get into serious trouble, into, into poverty. Uh, so I think these are the discussions we haven't had yet, but at the European level and also at the national level, they will come up. 
Well, yeah, it's the same in Italy. I mean, news broke today that public debt is going to reach unsustainable levels because economic projections did not take the second wave into account. So these successive lockdowns are going to be much more of a problem, I think, than than anyone had anticipated. And the impetus now in Italy is just to get that recovery fund spending um, dispersed as soon as possible to get it approved at the very least. Exactly. Europeans haven't thought this through. Um, we, I mean, we've argued that by the first lockdown was like, you know, classic V-shaped thing. We have the policy instruments to, to deal with this. Uh, a second lockdown will have serious implications on the solvency of companies, on unemployment, on long-term unemployment. If you want to feather, if we want to feather this, we would require an unprecedented level of public debt a and a complete deviation from the fiscal rules. So when governments impose uh, the second lockdown, they would have to say that we will not be able to return to European fiscal rules in the foreseeable future. And that basically means in a generation. This doesn't mean in a year or two. Uh, and that's basically a very big choice we're making here uh, under the cover of a lockdown. If this lockdown will presumably last for most of the winter. And uh, and if it does, then uh, the, the fiscal uh, implication will be very severe. We haven't thought this through, and it will also require another recovery fund. I mean, we have, we're talking about the, the delay of the first recovery fund. Uh, this not even lockdown, started about the second uh, one. This one, we need we need a recovery fund, probably you know ten times the size of the first one, uh, and we won't be able to do this in the EU budget. So we don't want another round with the Dutch and the and the and and <laughs> and uh, so this discussion we can't have. So we will need to set this up the way we propose this right from the start. Just go outside the outside the EU, do this as a coalition of the willing and. Uh, uh, launch this thing, you know, use the EU as your, you know, make a promise that this will eventually be folded into the EU, like the ESM, the same, the same idea. And eventually, you know, this thing becomes European debt, but don't try to get it right, the whole thing right from the start, just, but try to solve the problem, as opposed to try to respect the institutional balance of the of Brussels. Uh, that is unfortunately the, always the priority in any EU projects, that it's always about who gets to do what and what is the commission, the parliament. Nobody really cares about what's actually happening on the ground. Uh, we are now in a situation where the Eurozone faces serious insolvency. I think we are on the cusp of another Eurozone crisis. It sounds to me like a reminder of uh, the Greek uh, crisis and the several bailout schemes it actually took to get Greece off the brink, away from the brink. And now it seems to be that we have to experience the same same sort of um, scenario, but this time on the Eurozone level. And I mean, someone's got to pick up the tab for this eventually, right? If austerity isn't an option, then how will countries be able to recover? If you have uh, if you have a low in interest rate uh, and if it's below the growth rate, the, you're growing out naturally out of this situation in a way that you don't have to put out so much effort in it. Uh, of course, if this is a reverse and if we have more inflation or if we have more, if interest rates are to rise above the growth rate, that is becoming unsustainable at the moment. I wouldn't worry about it. The ECB has an infinite capacity to fund this. Uh, you know, this is, we are not we are not uh, in any external exchange rate regimes. We can create as many. Euro as we want. We can fund government deficits for a very long time, but it also means that we cannot follow the rules for a long time. And once you have deficits running at 
10, 15% per year for several years running, uh, you will not be able to get back to 3% in, uh, in a short period of time. It will take, you know, five to 10 years to get back to 3%. It will take, you know, you will probably never achieve the 60% debt target. That is a target that needs to be scrapped. And along with this target, the, uh, the fiscal compact, which is all about how do we achieve that target? These are now illusionary goals that are outside, you know, unachievable, even with the best of efforts, because it would require a degree of austerity that is completely, um, I mean, it was already not an achievable goal, as we saw in, 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 the up, in the upturn that we had between the two crises. Even in that period, we were not on track to achieve that goal. So, so this has to be scrapped completely. We might just pretend that it's still there, as we Europeans always do. We try to pretend there are rules, but then we don't follow them. Uh, but that will un, you know, undermine confidence because some people actually do believe in them. And Northern Europe people have actually believed in those rules. Uh, and they, and a, a Montreal Union that is that makes an explicit recognition that these rules no longer exist may no longer be supported by some. So there is going to be a crisis, some some resolution. We're not saying there's going to be a breakup. You know, this this the unsustainability of the situation can have different um, consequences. You know, there could be a breakup, but people could also you know resign themselves to believing that that we have to run this in a different way than we thought we would have to run this. And maybe you know the deficit, uh, maybe there can be another fiscal regime that is sustainable. We think the only I think I've always thought the only alternative to a fiscal to a rules-based regime is a is a European regime where the fiscal where the fiscal responsibility for all the big spending programs is shifted to the centre, and that the EU would then or the the, the 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 monetary union at that level would take on the debt, and it would then uh, it and all the the, fun, the the economic stabilization efforts would happen at that level, and the and the member states then were free to follow the rules because it wouldn't matter so much. How far away are we from a scenario like that? Oh, we are far away from that because it would require a treaty change. But we are not far away from the crisis uh, in which this would become apparent. Now, the Germans have extended their short-term working scheme until next year. I would expect most Europeans to do the same thing. So 21 is not going to be the year of crisis because also we're going to have German elections in, in, in September and the German government will not allow any anything bad to happen until then. And then we're going to have the French elections in 2022. And then we're going to have no, the Italian happened. elections in 2023. Uh, maybe in 2022. So I think we may have a couple of years of uh, forbearance. But at the end of that period, these methods, these systems can no longer be sustained. And then we have to deal with solvency issues. And that means another big round of spending. This would be actual spending. Either we let these companies go bust or we keep them artificially in business or we inject equity into them. Whatever we do, we need to address this and it will cost us a lot of money that will, the ECB will ultimately have to provide. So, Paige, you have uh, written about the Netherlands. How would the Netherlands actually play this um, with Mark Rutte facing his elections next March? So uh, what's, uh, what's your, your, your view on that in, in all this? Well, I found the story kind of, I don't want to say humorous from the beginning, but really interesting because tax evasion is another component of conditionality. There's country-specific recommendations that were released by the EU. And for the Netherlands, it's to cut down on companies that dodge their taxes, or they call it aggressive tax planning, I think. So companies in the Netherlands, like the shipbuilding industry, are complaining right now. They want to get the same billions in subsidies from the recovery fund that industries in Italy are set to receive because Italy has already 
submitted its recovery fund spending plan. But the way it's working right now is because there's an election coming up in the Netherlands in March. Rutte is going to be really reluctant to make any big decisions that might cause political waves or drive multinationals out of the country. So it's unlikely that they're going to submit a recovery fund spending plan prior to the elections, which means they'll miss a deadline, which means they'll be waiting longer for their money. So I don't want to say it's, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, it's schadenfreude, to see, you know, the leader of the frugal four be stymied by the same regulations that it's really fighting for other countries to implement. But uh, I think it is just really interesting, like, like we've written, conditionality cuts both ways. Yeah. Yeah. You find this often in small countries. They develop a certain uh, moralistic tone towards others. And the, the Dutch are very good at this, having, oh, you know, Protestant, having been, Calvinist. Absolutely. Mm. Having developed a, a very arrogant position towards Italy and Spain. And, and yet, and, and yet they, their own policies of tax shelters for large corporations have, um, you know, make it very difficult for the other countries to collect their own taxes. I think Schadenfreude is not the, uh, it's, not, it's never the right sentiment, but it's certainly clear to, to certainly also a people's responsibility to point out to the Dutch that uh, there is certainly an inconsistency in their approach, mm. and I agree. Uh, and that needs yeah. to be needs to be made made also very clear. If everybody, I mean, this is the thing: the eurozone is a, co- a collection of small countries, uh, you know, run by small country policymakers, who everyone, you know, they want to compete with everybody, and then, but they're running a large, a large economy together. It should not be possible that countries like Ireland and the Netherlands allow companies to shift profits artificially into those economies to the detriment of the production facilities in other countries. That is something that is just not right. You know, you will not create a, a, a lasting monetary union in which countries behave in that manner. Yeah, agreed. All right. Well, that's it for us this week. Thank you very much for joining and stay tuned because next week we will be joined by a very special guest. Until next time.